I reject the premise that millennials or youth are losing faith in institutions. I wish they would. Um... Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the ER's Millennial Edition. Today, I'm joined by FP staff writer Siobhan O'Grady. Also with us is FP editorial assistant Ben Soloway and Reed Standish, assistant digital producer here at FP. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So guys, let me put this conversation in perspective. I've been traveling around the world, doing the business of, you know, FP kind of things. And everywhere I go, there's a recurrent theme that I'm getting from senior government officials, from people in the media. And that theme is that one of the big problems that governments everywhere are facing is that millennials are losing faith in institutions and that people can't seem to connect to them, government leaders in particular. I was last week in the United Arab Emirates, which recently appointed a new minister of youth. And they did something pretty novel there. The minister of youth they picked was 22 years old. So instead of the usual 65-year-old talking, you know, well, I remember back when I was young, you've actually got somebody who's 22 and actually understands issues that are relevant to the generation that's going to be inheriting all the crap that's left to them by the current group of world leaders. So the place I'd like to start is, how do all of you feel finally having a minister in the world who's younger than you? <laughs> Just barely younger. Oh, yeah. See how you cling to that? I mean, I think that there are obviously benefits to having those voices in actual political positions. But at the same time, that's a very interesting change from the United States where someone who's literally 50 years older than him is uh, one of the presidential front runners for the Democratic uh, nominee because Bernie Sanders is 72, but his his large base is in the youth who see him as someone who's an advocate for them. So uh, that seems like a huge disparity between the two countries where, uh, you know, obviously here we have laws about how old you can be to run for head of state. Uh, but I don't know if we actually even have a, any equivalent of a minister of youth. We don't. We, there are a bunch of cabinet positions we don't have that other governments have. In fact, we're the only government in the world that doesn't have a minister of culture. But, you know, all you have to do is turn to the e-network and you understand why that would be unnecessary. Reed, you're not even from the United States of America. You're from a more advanced society <laughs> in Canada. How do, how do you feel about this issue? For the record, I should say this is actually my first U.S. election I get to vote in. I'm a dual citizen now, so I'm very much looking forward to exercising my right to vote finally. So you're actually one of the people that Donald Trump wants to build a wall to keep out? <laughs> uh, I guess so, yeah. Um, that's me. He actually went on the record saying he only supports the Mexico while he loves Canadians. But back to your original question, David. Observing this from the point of view of a Canadian, our politics are much more mild. This parliamentary system, it's multi-party. It doesn't lead to the same type of uh, rhetoric and bombast. What the youth want is people in government that looks like them, that represents them, and that shares their ideas. I think Siobhan is really right to talk about Bernie Sanders, and that's someone who is an interesting example of someone who's on the complete opposite age of the age spectrum, but is still able to sort of, you know, harness that and really uh, ride with it and really gain from it. Why is he gaining from it? 
I think it's the appeal of his ideas as a generation. It's new. It's exciting. His, his ideas are like the New Deal. What's new about this? It's like dates back to 1932. You know, this is general nostalgia in general, right? So for people of perhaps this generation, the past, that era of the United States, that era of politics is generally seen as something that was a, a very good period. And a lot of people want to sort of harken back to those days. Ben, make some sense of this to me. I reject the premise that millennials or youth are losing faith in institutions. I wish they would. Um, but, you know, I think we can see in the Vietnam era or plenty of times over the past hundred years, a much greater and more widespread popular lack of faith in institutions than we see now. And I think by and large, our generation actually is complacent with the institutions that we're given. And I think the Sanders candidacy is a, is evidence of that because there are millions of people who genuinely think that campaign is a political revolution. Um, and these are people who haven't lived through any revolutions, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't you just recently spend some time in Africa and spend some time with young people there? Are you saying that they have faith in institutions? Are you saying that uh, the Arab Spring was not a manifestation of uh, problems with uh, uh, institutions because, you know, the majority population in those countries is young. It's a, uh, in fact, most of those countries are the majority populations under the age of 24, certainly under the age of 30. We've also seen major institutions face crises and it's not particular simply to the young, but uh, this group of young people has grown up in an environment where the Catholic Church has been involved in a scandal, you know, which is a bedrock institution in which FIFA is involved in a scandal, which is a widely followed institution in which political leaders in countries in every corner of the world are involved in, in these kinds of scandals or dysfunction in Washington. When I was in uh, Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo last June, uh, I did meet a lot of youth who were being silenced. Uh, youth activists there are regularly arrested and, uh, and you know, intimidated by the government. Uh, a lot of them who have used even music and dance as a means for political expression have, you know, been targeted by the police, have had dance studios shut down. Um, and ahead of an election there that's supposed to be happening in uh, this fall, we'll see if it actually goes ahead as scheduled. A number of youth activists, prominent ones, have, have been arrested. So a lot of what the Bernie Sanders activists care about is important. And they feel on college campuses that they're not being advocated for by their administrations, that they're that there are rapists who are walking around campuses free because there aren't policies in place to protect them, uh, that they're being told what to wear, what, uh, you know, how to act, and that uh, that's not that's not okay. But for me, there was a great op-ed written in the New York Times by uh, Jill Filipovic last week about how women over the age of 30 tend to support Hillary Clinton more than Bernie Sanders because they connect with her experience as a woman and care deeply about having a woman be in office uh, rather than, you know, a man who a lot of feminists have begun to, to back. They're feminists backing Bernie Sanders? I know. Crazy, right? With, with, with all the Bernie bros and all this kind of nasty anti-Hillary, anti, you know, this kind of uh, implicit sexism behind the campaign. What's going on with that? I think there are feminists who are willing to subsume their feminism to the political movement that surrounds Bernie Fan Sanders, which is 
social democratic left-wing idealism. And I don't think most people who've been watching the Bernie campaign seriously from day one think Bernie's running to become president. Obviously, that's become a reality that the campaign can strive for. But we all know that, wink, wink, nod, nod, Bernie's running in order to make the issues that he's been fighting for since the 60s become part of the political conversation in the American mainstream. And and to animate, and he has, and to animate a generation of young voters around actual left-wing issues rather than centrist pragmatism, which has been winning the day for however long in the Democratic Party, certainly under Clinton and Obama. I think that's great. I think that it's wonderful to see young people getting excited about politics and to be going to these rallies and feeling really strongly about a candidate and trying to recreate the excitement that kind of surrounded Obama's 2008 campaign, but for very different reasons. Um, And I think that it's totally valid for feminists to support Bernie Sanders. He stands for a lot of feminist ideals. And I don't think that um, any true feminist would tell another feminist that she shouldn't vote for Bernie because there is another there's a chance to put a, a woman in office. But I do understand the sentiment that um, that, you know, a lot of people are saying that they do want a female president. They don't want Hillary Clinton to be the female president. Um, but but it is you know hard to imagine when another opportunity will come up for for a woman to be president, because I other than, you know, talk about Elizabeth Warren, there's not really another rising star in the Democratic Party who who would be that candidate. You know, you guys just sound just like any other generation. There really doesn't sound like there's anything different. Maybe this whole idea that millennials are somehow unique and have some perspectives that are different from everybody else is just the usual. And actually, each generation is pretty much just like the one before it. Seems like you need to read a few more think pieces about millennials. Why is that? I'm just kidding. They all seem to, there, there seems to be a trend in think piece journalism. Do you actually read think piece journalism? From time to time when my job requires it of me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like every other young generation, it's fueled by idealism. And this happens to just be the first generation where you have that idealism hitched up with another side of all this technological things. And those two things are really hybridizing together, right? You know, Arab Spring. Another example is Euromedon that happened in Ukraine. Friends who I went to college with actually were Ukrainians. And I remember when that was happening. And it was very interesting for me. Where do you find a bunch of Ukrainians? I was in the UK, in Glasgow, Scotland. Oh, well, that explains everything. (laughs) But, um, you know, it was very interesting for me at that time to watch them uh, you know, being afar, but also playing this very active role, a lot of it online in terms of organizing, whether it was money, you know, sharing live streams, raising activism on campus. All of this was done online. All of this was tools. This was on social media. This was passing the buck, communicating, you know, with your aunt in a far flung region of eastern Ukraine and sending her information about what was going on in Kiev while that person was in Glasgow, Scotland. And a lot of that is fueled by those same things that I think we were talking about earlier, which generally comes back to this idealism, which is really at the heart of this. Does anybody want to come back to me and say there is something idiosyncratic beyond that about this generation? I don't think there is. And I think we show the same willingness as every previous generation to actually, with exceptions, because you can't generalize about an entire generation everywhere in the world to accept institutions at face value. And I think you can see that across continents and societies. I think much of our social and um, online life is mediated through massive institutions that we trust blindly with our data and our Facebook and (laughs) the things that are most important and personal to us. 
I think that the, for instance, the Bernie Sanders campaign is evidence that whatever revolutionary mindset exists, at least in the very developed world, tends to find outlets that are institutional in nature. Um, and that's the kind of revolution that can exist and be successful in revolution in quotes. Um, and, um, you know, I was reporting from Indonesia for a year, the fourth largest country and the only country that's around the same size as the U.S. in the world. And there, people, too, were desperate to trust in institutions. And um, even as the chief justice of the Supreme Court, the highest court in that country, uh, was found guilty of selling decisions from the bench to the highest bidder using his cell phone um, and using methamphetamine also on the bench, um, people were desperate to trust that court and desperate for an electoral process where they could just go to the polls and be heard that way. So, um, yeah, I would say around the world, millennials are, as they become more comfortable, are becoming more complacent. This is just incredibly depressing. I was kind of (laughs) hoping something was going to happen. It was going to be a little different. It'd be spicy. It would be edgy. It would, I don't know, have tattoos on it or something. It would be like, uh, you know, and it sounds to me like here are you guys who are all intelligent, hyper-informed millennials traveling in interesting circles. You know, the question is, you know, is anything happening anywhere? It seems to me, candidly, that I have a greater sense that there is something different going on because, you know, I saw something the other day that said that something like of the millennials who are about to vote, 70% of them get most of their news from social media. Um, which is very different from getting your news via traditional uh, media because social media is the echo chamber on an echo chamber. I mean, everybody says good stuff about social media, but it seems to me that the thing about social media is that you're getting stories forwarded to you by your friends, which is likely to compound the, the tendency that older generations have to listen to news that you know suits them. Uh, or opinions that suit them uh, and, you know, sort of providing, you know, because you, why would you want to share something that didn't make you look good with your friends? So you're starting to think of the social consequence of the media that you're sharing. It, you know, isn't, isn't that an aspect of, of, of a trend that makes the group different and, and is a little worrisome? Probably they're all just reading FP on social media. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's probably true, Ben. Maybe Siobhan has a different opinion. I mean, one thing that I think is really alarming me that this trend I'm seeing on Facebook, I'm I'm from uh, from Boston and I have a lot of Facebook friends uh, from my various travels from school in Pennsylvania and from uh, my high school, a lot of whom I should really start deleting. Um, but they wow, that's a little harsh. <laughs> well, you're about to hear why. You're about to hear yeah. why. Um, they post these stories that are from the most unreliable news sources. I mean, websites that I would probably laugh at and have no idea. I've never heard of this website before. And I'll see them posting saying, you know, wow, unbelievable. And it's some it's some crazy thing that that, you know, Trump said or Bernie said or Hillary said, but none of these things actually happened. And it's like this weird uh, willingness to latch on to anything that they see on the Internet to be true. And I've seen this across age ranges. I mean, I have older Facebook friends who who really do some crazy stuff on on Facebook, but um, a lot of 
a lot of the articles that I see shared and that I see so much commentary surrounding are based on aren't based on any facts. And so, I mean, I think Facebook and Twitter have opened this huge platform for conversation, but that in a lot of ways, um, that opportunity falls flat when when the links being shared aren't uh, you know actually prompting valid conversations. Right. I mean, it's a two way street, right? It's on the one hand, yeah, this is opening it up. You're able to share information and you know come into new ideas like never before. But at the same time, you're that much more exposed to false information, false information, or just like David was saying, you know, it's essentially an echo chamber on an echo chamber. You can really just reinforce, never really challenge yourself, you know, and stay within your own little enclosed bubble in the same time. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, I guess it's like social media is like any sort of tool. Um, It really depends on who's wielding it. Right. Absolutely. We talked about losing faith in institutions. One thing we've definitely collectively, not just our generation, lost faith in is journalistic institutions. And that's one of, that's been in the public dialogue lately because of Spotlight. And winning an Academy Award shined the light on, on you know, one example of uh, journalism working well. Yeah, but that, you know, that was a long time ago. That was 10, 15 years ago. And uh, I feel like a lot of the conversation around that film has been that it's a reminder that these dwindling institutions and uh, models for interrogating the world around us still have value and pertinence and are still necessary, even if there's no way to make them profitable. As a a film about journalism that counteracts, you know, this is pre-social media agent. It's about investigative journalists spending months and months digging into one story. Right. um, Which is completely counter to the, you know, 24-hour news cycle. Yeah, or the sort of Twitter approach where you say, here's a wild rumor that I've heard. Anybody out there think it's true? Exactly, yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's very refreshing to to sort of see a story that, you know, even for, you know, when I went and saw it as a, you know, as a young journalist, I'd be like, oh, yeah, right, like this is sort of what attracted you to this in the very first place, right? Exactly. And actually, Reed and I saw that movie together. And as we were walking out, a group of people behind us, uh, we overheard them saying, man, doesn't that just make you want to get up and go to work tomorrow? And I turned around and was like, where do you work? And they said they worked at Politico. So there was this kind of sense in the audience, you know, for a lot of journalists who were there, considering it was opening week in Washington, uh, you know, that that it was inspiring to see that. And as someone who grew up uh, Irish Catholic in the Boston area, uh, watching that movie and seeing you know, I remember when that movie came out and the effect that it had on my family and on the churches uh, in my community. And to you be able to, when the, you mean when those stories came out? When the stories came out, sorry, yeah. So when I was um, much younger, I mean, I remember those. I remember those covers of the Boston Globe coming through, and now to look back and see, as a journalist, look back at that story and realize what a dramatic change it had on the community that I lived in. Um, and how much, you know, how the challenges that they faced in the Boston Catholic community because of the way that the Catholic Church is such an institution there. Um, I mean, I, it was really amazing to look back and realize that people were walking around in the same streets that I was making that story happen and that there's a value to that, that it's worth it's worth paying for that and to um, especially journalism that, you know, results in change. Well, let me ask you a, a, a couple of questions about other things that might distinguish this group from others. So, for example, you mentioned Hillary Clinton earlier. And uh, actually, my, my daughter, who's a writer for Jezebel, my older daughter, um, uh, was on CNN a couple of weeks ago. And they were talking about Hillary Clinton. And the point was made in the discussion that the that Hillary Clinton wasn't connecting to younger women voters – uh, for several reasons, but 
One of the things that was interesting was that those younger women didn't feel the urgency about voting for women because they had been during their lifetimes, women had always been in positions of some power or another, Nancy Pelosi or whomever, and they just assumed that a woman would be president at some point, and it didn't have to be Hillary Clinton; it'd be somebody else. Is that uh, you know, is that a, a, a reality that you know, here in the U.S.? Do you agree with that? I actually do agree that people feel that way. Um, I, as a young woman, don't feel that way, um, that there isn't an urgency to have a woman in office, um, although obviously having a woman in office doesn't mean uh, that that sexism will end. But I, as I said earlier, it, it's just this idea that, uh, you know, there isn't anyone else that I see in the near future uh, coming up as a rising star who's also a woman um, in terms of names that are floating around for, for potential candidates in the future. And um, I know that a lot of what I was, the article that I was referencing earlier raised similar points that uh, a lot of women grew up with moms who were working full time and that I did too. Um, my, my mom worked full time from the time that I was an infant and uh, I grew up watching that and having that be normal in my household. But I also had conversations with my mom about feminism and about, um, you know, issues that, that she faced in the workplace potentially or that she had witnessed or that her friends had experienced. And I, um, you know, I felt even going through college that I experienced instances, like I said, where the institution that I attended was not protecting women from sexual assault and that there was a real need for activism. And I believe there still is. Um, but I, I think that the difference is that a lot of women see Bernie Sanders as an ally even if he's not a woman and that an ally who stands for a lot of things that they stand for in their eyes might be just as good. A male ally might be just as good as a female who maybe they don't seem, um, you know, they, they aren't inspired by for whatever reason. Even though she has been at the barricades and the struggle for women's equality, for the struggle for women in leadership roles um, uh, since the 70s, right? Right. But there, there seems to just be a, a you know, a general attitude among people who are not voting for her that that she doesn't necessarily just because she's a woman doesn't mean that she represents all women, which is, again, you know, a valid point. But um, that's why when Gloria Steinem came out and, you know, made some remarks about how, uh, how about how women who were supporting Bernie, you know, were, you know, doing it to hang out with the boys who were supporting Bernie, you know, was really offensive because you you shouldn't be voting for a woman just just because she's a woman necessarily. If you don't if you don't agree with her policy. It shouldn't dictate your every move. Um, but I do think that there, it's a valid point to make that, uh, that women have an opportunity to put a woman in office and, uh, and some just don't seem to sense that that would change their lives or the opportunities that they'd have in the future. Is that like a, out of a sense of progress that you're at this point where you can say like, well, we, we think we have male allies who can get on our side? So many women seem... Uh, willing to back Bernie because they see him as an ally for issues on campus. As I've said, he really is uh, attractive to the the younger generation, um, meaning current college students. And as as I keep saying, but uh, this one article brought up all of these issues of women who have actually worked for a few years and experienced sexism in the workplace and, uh, you know, had just different life experiences outside of campus, um, recognize that, that having a female head of state would actually, you know, be such a major change in the way that women see themselves in, in public policy and see themselves in the workplace um, and potentially are treated in the workplace. And so I, I really don't have an answer to that question. You know, one thing I've noticed is a lot of 
people who are identify as feminists and uh, who are men and women on the left who don't support Hillary or who will would be willing to support Hillary in the general, but um, hope that Bernie Sanders will get the nomination or don't even think that he'll get the nomination, but are willing to support him anyway for other reasons, tend to see the LGBT movement, trans rights, gay rights, and women's rights as going hand in hand or not even being separate issues. And it's sort of hard to take Hillary Clinton for many people seriously on those issues when when she was older than most of our mothers, she was still espousing anti-gay views publicly and vocally. Um, And uh, I think that for many people trumps the fact that uh, she's the best shot for a first woman president. I mean, you know, family is a man and a woman and kids kind of stuff puts people off. Um, and that's gotten a lot of replays. Uh, also, people have a, a real sense of sort of disappointment from the Obama years. And Hillary is so enmeshed with how people feel about Obama that it's hard not to transfer that feeling over onto her. And I think, you know, it took Obama a long time to come around on some of these issues that are important to the women's rights, LGBTQ rights left. And some of that goes to Hillary. And people were disgusted with Obama's record on executive transparency and explaining what the presidency does. Uh, You know, he was far worse than Bush in terms of transparency issues and... Uh, Hillary doesn't look good on transparency either. She looks like, um, to many people, like she's evading transparency. All right. Well, I'm gonna. I'd, I'd like to move along. We only have a few minutes left here, and I want to move to a couple of international issues. But before I do that, I can't help but ask, as you talk to your friends and as you sort of think about this, what's what? What about Trump? What's what's up with that? You know, I mean, I blame it all on Siobhan because she's like, well, I used to be an activist, but now I'm not, I don't care about this. And then you get Trump. But is it really her fault? I don't like to credit myself too much, but yeah, it's me. It's you. (laughs) I mean, is there, I mean, is, is it your perception or when you talk to your, I mean, are your friends horrified by the prospect of Donald Trump, amused by the prospect of Donald Trump, or people you talk to in other countries? What's their reaction? You know, especially speaking from someone whose family lives in another country, um, I can tell you uh, the last Wait, time I was— still, you consider Canada another country? I do, for the time being, yes. And so, you know, I was when I was home for uh, Thanksgiving dinner, that was pretty much what that conversation devolved into is, you know— is there actually going to be a President Trump and sort of the horror on everyone's, you know, how do we deal with the United States with the Donald Trump at the end? And there's a lot of anxiety, I think, even within Ottawa and within lots of other governments around the world about how do you engage with the United States when you have this sort of, you know, a very erratic and completely unpredictable sort of person at the helm. One thing that uh, has come up again and again in conversations that I've had with friends living in Washington uh, is that, yes, Donald Trump is scary, but that it's actually Ted Cruz who most of my friends feel threatens their daily values and lifestyle um, even more than Ted Cruz or even more than Donald Trump, because Trump is a lot of talk and he he says whatever he's feeling at the moment. And yes, many of his policy ideas are uh, you know very scary for our generation um, and for anyone who you know believe. I mean, his call for ban on Muslims is uh, atrocious, and the idea that he wants to build a wall on the Mexican border is extremely offensive. But Ted Cruz has a history and a record as a policymaker of fighting for uh, ideals that that 
a lot of people don't agree with and also, you know, I, I believe would carry them through um, in a way that Trump, I think he's saying whatever he feels like right now, but when it actually comes, push comes to shove, I don't think a lot of these things would actually happen in a Trump administration. That's what I find very puzzling about him is just, just generally, if you actually look at his record, he's sort of a middle-of-the-road Democrat, actually, if you go back, you know, just to a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, I think Siobhan hits on a really interesting nerve, which is this sort of weird tension happening in the GOP where you have actually Trump, who's this sort of massive populist or nativist, whatever you want to call him, who, you know, racist. says these— The term I use is racist. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> that That's fair, too. Um, but, you know, he says these very, you know, hateful, you know, you know violent things um, that grab headlines and do all that. But actually, yeah, if you look at, say, someone like Ted Cruz— he actually has a history of actually being able to execute those things. Who knows if Donald Trump would actually follow through on any of these things? You know, he, my speaking from my own point of view, I mean, he seems like somebody who is generally just saying these things to uh, rise in the polls. And it's working. I mean, people like that he says these crazy things. I've been watching interviews, don't ask me why, with people who have come out of polling booths um, in some of the states that have already had their primaries or have caucused. And people are saying, um, oh, yeah, I vote for Trump because I like the way that he just says what he feels. And my question for them would be, well, do you agree with how he feels? Because if you're just attracted to the way that he's that he's comfortable doing that, that that shouldn't earn him a vote. Um, so obviously well, there seems to be a whole thing going on. And I think it's also a little bit fed by social media, to be perfectly honest. But there's a number of kind of movements which attract a lot of attention um, that are about what people are against or what they don't like and not very good on what they're for. And I include in this Occupy Wall Street. Um, uh, I include in it the Arab Spring. I include in it to some extent Black Lives Matter. Um, there are a bunch of these movements. You know, it's like, yeah, we're against this stuff. You know, Donald Trump, we're against this stuff. Um, but then you say, well, what is it you're actually for? What do, what do you – how are you going to take this mobilized mass and turn it into positive action? And this seems to be one of the big questions about uh, uh, a social media-driven generation is how, how, do you, how do you translate grassroots feelings into grassroots action that produces mainstream action? I think the, the the deafening silence is to show that none of us maybe have the answer to that one, David. But maybe that's a very illustrative of everything we've just been talking about. It also takes openness on the existing institutions' parts to have conversations and to make amends and to agree that, yes, we have a problem. And typically, if you look at, I mean, the Arab Spring is an example of just total disagreement, total disconnection between the people on the ground who are protesting and the and the government. So I don't even... I don't even think that's a necessarily 